Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Hello, welcome to The Sandbox Story, which is an interview of Dr. Richard Castillo, who's a doctor of optometry and also an ophthalmologist. Dr. Castillo, it's a thrill to have you on Sandbox Stories. Welcome. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, as I've been doing this podcast, I've interviewed a lot of folks that uh, come from different parts of the industry, some that aren't doctors, um, some that are doctors, but also have doctorates and things like, you know, PhDs and chemistry and science. Sure. I've interviewed uh, Dr. Luke Probst, an ophthalmologist from uh, Canada, um, but uh, you will be my first uh, double eye doctor uh, <laughs> interviewee. I'm just really grateful that you're here and, and to have you in the profession. So if you don't mind, we'll get started. Let's, let's go. Let's do this. Your family is an all optometry family, if I understand. Can you give yes. us a rundown of the eye doctors in your family? How about that? Um, well, it, it started uh, in Tahlequah, in the little town of Tahlequah in the mid-80s uh, when I was a student. Uh, my class was actually, I believe it was the fourth class to enroll at the newly formed NSU College of Optometry. It wasn't even the Oklahoma College of Optometry back then. It was the NSU College of Optometry. And uh, that's where I met my wife. She was two years behind me. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, made it through school together. Actually, I, I made it through first. I was two years ahead. I graduated. Uh, we got married the summer that, uh, well, the year after I graduated. And uh, we lived in Tahlequah while she was still finishing up one year. And uh, during that summer, I, I got this crazy notion that I still, you know, needed another eternity in school. So, uh, you know, after we, we got married, we'd move to, uh, to Tulsa. And, uh, you know, I did what I did then over the next eight years. Uh, along the way, we had uh, two boys, and my eldest son decided that optometry was the right lifestyle and the right career choice for him. So I've got uh, an OD wife and an OD uh, eldest son. That's fantastic. My youngest, my youngest, my youngest uh, is actually a math major here at NSU right now. And uh, he has uh, no uh, aspirations to go anywhere near eye care for some reason. I, you know, I, I don't know why it didn't rub off on him, but, uh, all, but he's doing of, okay. All three of mine have stayed away, so. Uh, okay. Well, then I'm grateful at least I got one. Right. So you went from this upbringing in New York City. I guess you grew up in Long Island, actually. Yes. Uh, to the University of Tulsa. How did you get from New York City to Tulsa? Well, that was an interesting story. Uh, my dad, who worked for American Airlines back then, and this is so this is a uh, mid 70s, mid 70s, he comes home one day and says, guess what? We're all moving to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And we're like, what? <laughs> 
So apparently, uh, American Airlines transferred something like eight, 9,000 families from, from New York, from Long Island to Tulsa. They consolidated uh, a lot of uh, their business. He was in data processing, and uh, Tulsa is one of their, was and still is one of their main hubs. And uh, so that's how we wound up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, you know, we, we uh, moved essentially from a suburb to a suburb, so it wasn't, you know, people talk about culture shock. It wasn't like that uh, for us, other than two things. People had a strange accent, and you could not find real pizza anywhere. It just <laughs> didn't happen in Oklahoma, at least not in the 70s. <laughs> That's interesting. Were your parents both from Long Island? My parents are actually uh, Colombian. They, they came to the United States in the late 50s. And uh, they settled in New York. Uh, actually, we had family there. So we had a lot of family there. And, uh, you know, we lived, uh, I mean, I was, I was born in New York City, but we had always lived in a town called Bayside, New York, which is, uh, you know, technically it's, it's in Queens, you know, like uh, the ex-president, Queens. And people from Queens actually don't consider themselves from Long Island, you have to be from either Nassau or Suffolk or one of the boroughs up north. You know, you ask someone from Queens, we'll go, hey, hey, we're from Queens. Yeah. <laughs> and somewhere along the line, you didn't really end up with the Long Island nor the Oklahoma accent. That's a heck of no. an uh, accomplishment. Well, that, that's what happens when you are, you know, uh, transported to Oklahoma at a very young age. Uh, you know, it was funny, years ago, uh, when Andrea Thaw was president of the AOA, she came to visit uh, NSU, and I went up and introduced myself. Hi, I'm, I'm, I'm Rich Castillo, and, and by the way, I'm from Long Island. She looked at me and said, you're not from Long Island. You know, first off, it's not Long Island, it's Long Island. Right. And secondly, you know, what did you say you were from? From Bay Queens? That ain't Long Island. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 I guess I lost the New York, uh, the New Yorkies. I never fully developed the Oki drawl either. So I, I don't know who to blame for that. Uh, you know, <laughs> well, your educational career, you already alluded to, you decided to really put it to yourself and, and take on more schooling. There's a story behind you getting this optometry degree and deciding to get an ophthalmology, uh, well, you know, get a medical degree and then go into a residency for ophthalmology. What sure. was that about? Well, uh, so again, let me take you back to Oklahoma, mid eighties. Uh, we are championing, championing, uh, oral therapeutics. So when I actually started school, we did not have that quite yet. And, uh, the Oklahoma, uh, association back then it was, I don't think it was the, uh, the OAOP yet, the Oklahoma Association of Optometric Physicians. Uh, maybe that happened while I was in school. But anyway, the state association was uh, pushing scope expansion. They got all the students involved. Uh, you know, we were really gung-ho. And, uh, you know, we, we learned the power of advocacy in, in optometry, you know, during that time. And I saw myself at the end of those four years graduating and doing all these remarkable things that we were doing in school and, and in our clinic. Our, our clinic, by the way, was in a brand new hospital 
the IHS had just built uh, a new facility in Tahlequah. They had built a, a, a lovely, uh, very state-of-the-art optometry clinic uh, to go along with that. And our class actually had all of our uh, clinical experiences at that one site. We didn't actually have to go on externships. I mean, we saw the full spectrum of eye care right there in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And so uh, here I am getting ready to graduate, and I see myself uh, going across the street and not being able to do half the things that we were actually doing at NSU, okay? Now, you, you, you fast forward a few years and everything changed, but back then, none of that was on the radar, or at least not on my radar. And, uh, you know, I, I really took to the, the, the healthcare model, the primary care model, and, you know, I don't, you know what, what happens when you're young? You have crazy thoughts. You know, so I thought, you know, another eight years of school is, is okay. But um, it, 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 you know, it, it just happened. Uh, I, I'll tell you who actually helped me out a lot was uh, Dr. Les Walls. You may know yeah. Dr. Walls. He actually became the dean uh, of NSU about a year after I graduated. But he actually was a professor there. He taught us several courses. He taught uh, pathology, general pathology to our class, which I, I thought was very interesting. And uh, he, he helped mentor me, you know, to a degree. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that's, you know, had, had I had a crystal ball, you know, and just, just even four or five years later, you know, everything changed. It, it was amazing. In fact, uh, two years after I graduated, the first lasers were done in Oklahoma. So, you know, things can change like that sometimes. But, uh, you know, I did not have that sense back then. And, and I, I tell you, I've had this question presented to me several times. Well, you know, why did you do this? And I said, well, because this was the situation back then. Uh, had I known or, or, or were we in the year 2021, uh, I would probably think twice about doing what I did because uh, a lot of what I enjoy doing is actually what optometry is doing this very day. I know that you don't mean to sound apologetic about having gotten an ophthalmology, you know, uh, no. background. No, and, not and at all. Not at all. You all you have been a staunch optometrist and optometry advocate for years. And a lot of that comes from being in Oklahoma, where the practice laws are very advanced. I, they always have I that. think so. Yes. Why does Oklahoma in particular have that bit of an advantage over most states in that its laws have always been a little bit further ahead of the others? I think, uh, number one, very strong leadership, okay? You have to give credit where credit is due. Um, you know, the, the leadership that uh, the OAOP has been able to, uh, you know, muster over the years, uh, the, the, the leadership that, uh, and the support that the Oklahoma State Board of Examiners, you know, ha has given uh, the state association and, the, you know, the community of practitioners here in the state, you know, I, I think it's been phenomenal. Um, the fact that we're a very rural state, uh, I know had a lot to put to, to do with what, you know, what was uh, able to be accomplished back then and, and where we've evolved, you know, to this date. Um, you know, the fact that optometry 
is represented in almost every county in Oklahoma, okay? Uh, ophthalmology, uh, and, and I, I've called ophthalmology a very equipment-intensive sport. You know, we need to be by big hospitals that can afford the toys and the gadgets that we need to do what we do. So because of that, uh, you know, ophthalmologists tend, at least in Oklahoma, and I'm sure, uh, you know, elsewhere as well, tend to gather uh, close to uh, larger communities, you know, cities where uh, those type of facilities, you know, exist. So the fact that optometry covers basically the whole state, uh, and because of that, you know, optometry is also able to uh, form these tight relationships with uh you know, members of their community, including the legislators and the elected officials from their community, uh, and the fact that optometry is very well educated, you know, and we're able to uh, show that, you know, to our patients and to our legislators. You know, all that has come together to create, you know, Oklahoma optometry. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that uh, it, it can happen in other places where, you know, those factors just don't seem to, to come together. You know, other, other places where you think, you know, they've got quality education, they've got quality, you know, doctors, and yet, you know, they, they run into problems, uh, you know, in the political arena and, and facing the political opposition, you know, because, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, the distribution of practitioners is, is not quite what you see here uh, or in other states like Arkansas. You know, Arkansas just passed their law. Uh, very similar situation to Oklahoma. Do you think that the um, the needs of the Native Americans that live around the college have helped the college um, advance uh, because there's such a wide variety of needs that that population has from an eye care perspective? That has been a wonderful partnership, you know, going on 30 years now, 30 plus years. Um, Yes, I, I would say that has certainly helped uh, the, the college evolve. Um, you know, you, you see, because of the resources that the Native American tribes put into healthcare, and, you know, these are actually, I, I've spent my entire career, you know, these facilities, and, and these are some of the best facilities. You should see what we have right now, you know, a, a tremendous uh, new outpatient uh, ambulatory care center, uh, they built a medical school, okay? Tahlequah, Oklahoma has a satellite. OSU uh, built a satellite medical school right next door. You know, that speaks something to the level of care and commitment to health care, you know, right here. So, yes, I would say that that definitely, uh, you know, helped, number one, uh, the decision, you know, helped make the decision of where to put the college in optometry or in Oklahoma, and uh, and number two, you see the full spectrum of eye care right here in Tahlequah. You know, we, we don't just see people or patients from Tahlequah. Patients come from all over. You know, patients come from Western Arkansas, Southwestern uh, Kansas or, or Missouri, Southeastern Kansas. I've even had people come up from Texas, you know, to, to get their care here at the facilities we have here. So no doubt that there there probably wasn't a better location, uh, you know, at the time or even in this day and age to put a college of optometry than, than Tahlequah, Oklahoma. And there probably is, is not a better 
partner uh, than uh, you know the Cherokee Nation and, and, and the IHS, you know, with regards to uh, allowing the college to step into their facility and act as the umbrella for eye care. And you've been the principal ophthalmologist there for over 20 years. Do you I, still? I've, yeah, I've I've been the only ophthalmologist for like four <laughs> counties. <laughs> principal of one. Do, have you, what surgical care services have you provided? Basically, anterior seg anterior seg care. Although when I got here, again, I'm the only ophthalmologist for several counties, uh, I found myself doing a lot of medical retina as well. So back before we had pattern lasers, I was doing PRP and macular grids and, and, and focals. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was a while, it was several years before we were able, able to form a, a good strong relationship with a, a, a local retina group which we've been very fortunate now to have had for probably over a decade. Um, so I was basically anterior seg, uh, cataracts primarily, and, and a lot of fair amount of oculoplastics as well. But being in rural America, sometimes you just have to handle whatever comes in the door. <laughs> and, yeah. and I have handled just about everything uh, that comes in the door that, uh, you know, I feel comfortable with, uh, you know, whether uh, I felt uh, I was uh, sometimes, you know, you feel like, well, this, this would, would go to Tulsa. If I was in Tulsa, this would go here, this would go there. Um, when you're an hour, you know, hour and a half away and your patient really doesn't have the means sometimes to travel, uh, you learn that, uh, you know, you got to push your limits as well. Uh, and, and you know what, that, that has been a benefit and, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not saying that I'm uncomfortable with that. I think that's made me, uh, a, a better provider and, you know, again, being in that, that, in the location we are where everyone has to do that, including, you know, the OD faculty and the residents and the students, I think that makes them better providers. It certainly makes them more confident when they get out and, and leave and go back home or go to set up practice and careers wherever they're going. And amongst the many things that you're proud of is your, um, your history of going out on behalf of the college and creating curricula that are hosted in other states, ongoing continuing education programs. In fact, we last crossed paths probably a year and a half ago here in Wisconsin. That's where right. We were co-teaching advanced procedures for optometrists um, and uh, some there were some oculoplastics and some other things going on there. I'm curious if you see yourself as you're teaching optometrists in those situations as an optometrist or an ophthalmologist? That's, you know, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I get up and I go to work every day and I see patients and some days I can tell myself I'm, I'm practicing optometry. Some days I'm practicing ophthalmology. Some days I don't know what the heck, you know, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm an ophthalmologist. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll tell I'm, you a, I'm an eye care, I'm an eye doctor. That's the, uh, that's, that's the one thing that I know for sure. You know, I'm an eye doctor and I get up every day and I try to help people out, you know, by being an eye doctor. <laughs> as a recipient of your continuing education, I've always seen you as somebody who very comfortably and um, I don't know the word I'm looking for. You, you, you carry yourself as an optometrist 
and you are proud to help other optometrists advance. And there are times where you use your ophthalmology background to do so. And there's times you use your opt optometric background to do so. And it's interesting. I think we care more about questions like that. And do you slice it than you do, which I think says it all. Um, yeah. You are, you are one person. I, I, I never stopped being an optometrist. You know, I, some, yeah, honestly, I, I would probably, because of, of the way that my career has evolved, uh, if I had to classify myself, it would be uh, an optometrist or an optometric physician uh, that happens to have this other degree, okay? And, and that enables me to do some things, uh, you know, to, to serve my patients. Um, but, uh, you know, my, and it's not just because my wife's an optometrist, <laughs> you go with optometry. Um, no, optometry has, has always been uh, to me more of a family than, you know, than, than probably medicine has been. Um, and yeah, again, maybe that's just because of where I wound up. You know, I had a very positive experience in optometry school. This, this is where I was born professionally, and you know I've never forgotten that. And uh, you know I've I've been as comfortable here, even you know e even as an ophthalmologist and and, and practicing in, in hospitals, you know, with other physicians. Uh, I am still very very comfortable uh, calling myself an optometric physician, and. Uh, you know, uh, that, that's just been a blessing that, uh, you know, I, I fell into. How do you suggest an optometrist think about advocating for him or herself when it comes to legislative activities and advocacy, when it comes to advocating for themselves with other healthcare mm -hmm. professionals that don't always understand what optometrist is about? Is there a way that they can disarm those situations and make it clear to the recipient of their information that mm -hmm. they are a valued primary healthcare provider? Yeah, well, you know, I think first of all, uh, know your stuff, you know, you be confident, know your stuff. If you know your stuff, they can, people can say whatever you want, but, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, things are, are gonna turn out all right for you. Um, there is a lot of uh, lack of, of understanding with regards to what modern optometry is. You know, I, I will I will have to say that some of that is uh, uh, basically you know pushed. It's a political agenda. Uh, some of that may be that optometry needs to do a little better job at promoting itself. You know, uh, don't be so humble. You know, you have excellent education and highly valued skills, uh, let the world know, you know? So I, I think maybe, you know, as optometrists and optometric physicians, we need to be a little more vocal uh, than, uh, than we have been in the past. And I, I think I'm seeing some of that, you know, people are starting to uh, take credit, you know, for what they do and what they can do. And I think that's, that's a good thing. Um, I think we need to do you know, or continue to do, you know, uh, a good job. And I think we've done a good job in, in some regard with legislators, again, in some states. Unfortunately, again, you know, it, there, there is a lot of politics. And, you know, ever since I was in school, it's like this. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it waxes and wanes. But it seems that whenever optometry moves to modernize its practice act, and especially in some states where, you know, the laws have not changed for decades. Uh, 
you know, there, there's always a political agenda that looks to, uh, you know, prevent that from happening. And, and that's unfortunate. And I don't know, you know, honestly, that that's necessarily going to change anytime soon. But, you know, I think the way around that is, again, to get to know your legislators. You know, optometry really has an edge because, again, we are, we, we by, by the nature of what we do and, and, you know, being primary care providers, we can practice almost anywhere. Okay, I don't know that ophthalmology can really say that. You know, I, we can be in, in small town America, okay, and in nowhere, Oklahoma. You do very well as an optometrist in nowhere, Oklahoma. You know, the ophthalmologist, you know, just even because of the, the, the culture that we're brought up in, you know, we, we go to the, you know, we have to find that ivory tower in the big town. Um, so you know what? When we go to move scope forward in optometry, you know, you, you're probably not going to get the Tulsa's and the Oklahoma cities. You know, those those legislators probably know medicine very well, uh, and they're not going to listen to somebody from nowhere, Oklahoma. But you know what? The vote from the legislator in nowhere, Oklahoma, counts just as much as the vote from the legislator in Tulsa. And there, in in our state anyway, there are a whole lot more of folks from nowhere, Oklahoma you know, and, and little town America than there are legislators in the big city. And so if optometry just pays attention to that and looks at the numbers and realizes that because of the way that we are distributed across most states, especially the rural states, you know, if we just pay attention to that grassroots, okay, and, and form those relationships with you know those neighbors who will someday be the legislators and the lawmakers, um, then it really is not going to matter so much what the political opposition says because those individuals who are our neighbors, you know, the person that we run into at the grocery store, the person that we go to church with, you know, the patient that comes into our office that lives you know a few blocks down, they will know who we are and what we're capable of, and you know what politicians say uh, is, is probably not going to be so important. You know, ultimately, that politician or that legislator from nowhere, Oklahoma, needs to listen to his or her constituents, okay, which is no or, you know, small town Oklahoma. From your seat in optometric education, you've, ex you've assessed that uh, both ophthalmology and I think optometry, too, is an equipment-intensive sport. Um, yeah. <laughs> It gets hard for an optometrist to think about the many things that they could bring into their practice. I'll go back again to our meeting uh, when you were up here with uh, Dr. Nate Lighthizer in uh, 2019, and we're yeah. talking about radio frequency devices and, yeah. and just the, the plethora of instrumentation. I think that optometrists can practice anywhere, but what's your commentary on how today's students are looking at all that? And, do they sort of make an assessment of that? Does it impact how they think about their early practice is going to go? Because you can't have it all day one. No, no, you, you can't. And, and you don't need to, you know, you don't need to start out with the Cadillac, you know. Um, that's, you know, something that I, I hope I get across to my students that, uh, you know, we were able to practice optometry and medicine before we had, you know, all these gadgets. And that, you know, some skills are fundamental and some skills, you know, you, uh, 
you should, you know, pick up and retain within your core and, uh, you know, you will be able to grow in to the, you know, the, the fancy stuff as, as your business evolves, as your career evolves. Um, but, you know, I, I will still say that even though, uh, you know, there are some, there is some technology that is very useful, uh, even from the get go. A lot of this stuff, you know, is still attainable uh, for optometry in small communities. Um, it's not so much, you know, for ophthalmology that really, really, uh, you know, needs volume. I mean, we need we need expensive technology and we need volume. Um, and uh, you know, ophthalmology. I tell you, I, I've seen over the past couple of decades trying to move back into primary care, uh, you know, because in, in some regards, you know, the way that uh, we were brought up in residency is really not going to be sustainable if you want to go back home, you know, to a smaller community. Yeah. Um, so, you know, optometry, again, has, has that edge. And so, again, no, you don't need to start out with the Cadillacs, you know, learn, learn your basic skills. Um, you know, understand that uh, there are different ways of doing things. You don't need radio frequency to get started in minor surgical procedures and office-based surgical procedures. You know, you don't need $50,000 worth of gadget. You can get started with $200 worth of scissors and scalpels and forceps, okay? And you know what? Here's a dirty little secret. The reimbursement is the same, okay? <laughs> I, maybe I shouldn't have said... You know, you remove the papilloma with scissors, you go snip. You're probably going to get paid the exact same amount as if you use the, you know, the $50,000 radio frequency gadget. You know, yeah. it's not as sexy, you know, snip versus high technology, but, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, cha-ching in the bank is <laughs> the same tune. <laughs> That's really good. Um, I, I know that when I did a little pre-interview question with you, you had said that it would be great if optometry could unleash itself from its scope model, where it's uh, sort of yeah. strictly defined by legislation. And I had Dr. Jim Sandifer, the longtime executive OD of the Louisiana, Louisiana Association, yeah. and they've got a very strong law that sort of lists the you know, I'm just going to say 20 things they can't do. And it's very simple, right? If it's not on that list, then it's doable. And yes. I guess I'm curious from your perspective on the cutting edge of education, where the current students feel like that line is in their mind when they go out into practice. They know they're going to have to comply with the, 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 the practice act of their state. But in their mind, is it, is it kind of all the way up to, you know, doing operations that go inside the eye? Well, again, um, you know, not, not everybody in medicine winds up a surgeon or wanting to do surgery, and it's the same in optometry. Uh, you know, th this is, uh, you know, something that uh, some people have an interest in and have a knack for and pursue, and, and others don't, and that's, that's fine. Now, in, in fact, when I go on these, you know, CE uh, excursions and, and these places that I've been to, you know, I, I will often ask, you know, somewhere along the way, you know, if, if the laws in, in this state, if the scope of practice, you know, is advanced to the point where you can go back to your practice on Monday and start doing what we've been talking about here this weekend, how many of you would actually, you know, do that? 
And it's never more. I would say, you know, it's always maybe 30 percent, 20, 30 percent that raises their hand. And and so I thank them. But then I look at, you know, the other 70 percent and I say, well, thank you for being here because you are actually the most important people in the room. OK, because without you, none of this would have happened anywhere. OK, because, you know, there there has to be a certain critical number of practitioners in any community that gets together and says, this is who we are and this is the standard of care. And the standard of care can vary from place to place, okay? And I don't know what that magic number is, but I can tell you that you need a majority of practitioners, uh, you know, a majority of the state membership saying, this is what defines us as a profession, this is where we should be. Uh, otherwise, it doesn't happen, okay? So it, it happened in Oklahoma, it happened in Kentucky, it happened in Louisiana, it happened in New Mexico with minor surgery, it happened in Arkansas, it happened in Oregon with some surgical, minor surgical procedures. Uh, you know, it's happened in, in a lot of places in Tennessee, in Alaska, and here most recently Mississippi and, and Wyoming, okay? So uh, when people get together, whether or not I'm actually going to be the guy that wants to do this, no, that, that's... That is not the point. The point is you support the profession, you support the association in its efforts. And you know what? You're going to see some tangible benefit, whether or not you go out and start doing these procedures or not, okay? Because you're still seeing these patients. You're going to be referring them. You're going to be a little more knowledgeable about what you're getting the patient into, you know, if you've had this education. And you know what? This is what I tell my students. You see that diploma, or you will have a diploma on your wall, okay? And, and the residents that already have one. Go home and look at that diploma and recall how much blood, sweat, and tears and money you put into getting that piece of paper, okay? If the laws in your state advance, okay, if your scope of practice advances, your services are all of a sudden worth that much more, okay, to, to the people in your community. And whether or not you practice in this fashion and you're the one doing these procedures, someday, you know, you're going you're gonna to want to retire. You're going to want to sell your practice. And you know what? There are patients, you know, in your, within your practice that need these procedures. And somebody coming along looking to invest, you know, in, in a practice or to purchase a practice is probably going to realize that if I'm in a state where we can do these procedures and I am you know, of the, the mindset and the skill set to do these procedures. That's what I'm looking for. All of a sudden, your practice is worth more to that individual or, or, you know. So, you know, even though you may not be the one running the radio frequency or, or you know, doing the biopsy, it, it benefits you uh, to support everybody else because ultimately, you know, it, it does, you, you do get a return on investment, okay? on your education and your profession, you know, if, if you, if you, you know, uh, participate, you know, in advocacy and support your colleagues. Well, as you know, that was the reason that I was at that meeting in 2019. I, I don't, I'm not in practice anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And I felt it was important to be a participant, to expand my knowledge, which I think is the at the core mm -hmm. of every optometrist's being and, sure. and to support those that wanted to do it just as, in the late 1990s, a bunch of us were sort of ahead of the curve, came down to Oklahoma, mm -hmm. uh, learned about anterior segment lasers, including photorefractive keratectomy. Yeah, yeah. And, yes. and, 
and then came home and started doing it. Now there's a whole big after story to that, but uh, uh-huh. it's, it's. I recall. I recall going to Wisconsin several times in what the early 2000s to to some. Uh, we we did uh, some of these courses at TLCs, a couple of the TLCs in Wisconsin. You were probably there, you know. And in fact, I remember one night uh, some of you guys took me out to eat walleye and drink beer. So <laughs> it best was, fish and beer I've ever had. By the way. It was the, it was the late '90s, and my former partner uh-huh. in practice, Dr. Vic Connors, who was an AOA guy, yes. was yes, involved. Yes, exactly. Yes, and a number of others, and a handful of us did refractive surgery on patients. We, uh-huh. the patients lived, um, uh, the patients were well taken care of. And I think we were a little out of step, I think in hindsight with the way that the state licensing board had to look at that, the way the association was ready to defend. And it did, by the way, the association uh-huh. ultimately perhaps unhappy with the, the rate of speed at which we went and the order in uh-huh. which we went still defended us. And, um, there's still a piece of paper that has my name as a defendant with the American Medical Association and the American Academy of Ophthalmology against the few of us that spoke uh-huh. at a press conference about telling the public that, hey, optometry has a, a lot to offer. And not every one of us will do this, but just know optometry has a lot to offer to your overall health and wellness from a vision perspective. And I, I, I just want to echo and, and reinforce what you said about stepping up and, and supporting those who want to take it another level. And uh, as an optometric educator, it's just fascinating to see you still you know, ready to go, just like you were when you got the uh, walleye and, and beer <laughs> 20 years ago. And, yeah, it, it's not just for walleye and beer that I go. <laughs> no, this, this honestly, this has been one of the remo- most rewarding aspects of my career, you know, and I didn't I didn't see that coming early on. I say, well, yeah, you know, I would like to go back home to Tahlequah. I think, you know, my my friends are there. Um, I think it would be a, a very nice place, uh, you know, to to have a career and raise a family. And uh, and then I got, you know, again, I was invited to participate in some advocacy and legislation. You know, when I got here. Uh, Oklahoma, we did not have a laser law yet, okay? Uh, in fact, that, that's probably what started this. I was actually finishing my residency, and so this was about 96, and the Oklahoma chapter of the Academy of Ophthalmology got a judge in Oklahoma to issue an injunction against ODs who were doing laser, okay? And, and you know, the first lasers were done here, I think, in 89, and so you've got years, you know, of experience with no real issues. And yet, you know, that's, that's, that's you know, political agendas, right? Right. Um, and uh, so I, I got a call from my friend who had just become the dean, uh, Dr. George Foster. Uh, you know, can you, uh, well, first he asked me, do you, have a, do you have a medical license yet? And I said, well, yeah, because, you know, oddly enough, in medicine, you get a license right after your internship before you do a residency. You know, before you do a residency and learn how to do whatever it is you're going to learn how to do in life, they give you a license. <laughs> okay? So, yes, I have a license. Well, you know, can uh, here's what happened. You know, a judge issued an injunction, and, uh, you know, we need to keep uh, the patient flow going. So he actually asked me to go to his office. He still had a practice in Bristow, Oklahoma. It's one of not really a nowhere Oklahoma town, fine community, uh, asked me to go there and, uh, and see some of his laser patients for him. 
And and so I got there, and uh, well, you know, there were patients, and there were also some students there. I think there were maybe even a resident there. So you know, the lasers may have stopped temporarily for optometry, but the education went on. Okay, and that I think uh, you know, sort of one thing led to another, and and all of a sudden I was contemplating a career as a as faculty at NSU, uh, and, and that was interesting because. You know, NSU had never really done. They didn't know how to. How do you bring a physician on board? You know, how does a, how does an ophthalmologist interface with the community? You know, with the medical establishment in the community. Um, but anyway, you know, we just decided we'll make it up as we go along, and we're still, I think, making it up as we go along. <laughs> a couple of decades later, but that's fine. Um, but really, that you know. That, that little taste of, uh, you know, helping the profession move forward, because it really didn't take long, uh, you know, the again, such a strong grassroots network here in Oklahoma. It didn't take long to reverse that uh, or, or to pass legislation, you know, to supersede that judge's opinion. And now the definition, the statutory definition of optometry includes laser surgery, okay? And then they did the same thing to us a couple of years later. I remember getting a call one night. Well, you're going to be a lot busier. Why is that? Well, because uh, the the Oklahoma Academy again, ophthalmology approached the Attorney General of Oklahoma, and and asked uh, him, can optometrists do non-laser surgery? We understand they can do laser surgery. It's it's written in black and white, you know. But what about non-laser surgery? It doesn't say anything about non-laser surgery. And again, we had been doing the things that we do, you know, to this day very well. <laughs> no problems and patients are happy and we're taking care of their problems. Well, again, it didn't take long. Uh, now, the, the OAOP stepped up and they said, okay, you know what? You want to play it that way? We're going to put a moratorium on ourselves. Nobody's going to do anything. Other than Castillo, you know, he, he, can, he can keep he can keep getting up and going to work every day. Um, they went back to the legislators and they fixed it, okay. And it didn't take long at all. And now the the, the statutes not only include laser but non-laser surgery. That is the definition, black and white, of what an optometrist or an optometric physician in Oklahoma is, okay. And you know, from my perspective. Who do we have to thank for that? We have the Oklahoma Academy of Ophthalmology. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's what has really always bound optometrists together. When a team gets in the huddle uh, yeah. on the other side of the line, then, you know, you can yes. pull your huddle yes. together. Yeah. But, you know, I'll tell you that to me, this my whole experience in advocacy has, has taught me that, you know, one of the things that we really need to change if we are able to is this, you know, practice defined only by legislation. OK, because, you know, there is no way that legislation can keep up with, you know, the, the turnover in technology and medical and optometric knowledge. I mean, there's there's no way. When I was in medical school, you know, back in the, the early 90s, I was told, I remember being told, you know, the medical knowledge base turns over about every three or four years. So, you know, you have to be keeping up constantly or you're going to be a dinosaur, you know, a few years after you graduate. Well, now it's like months. They measure it in months, you know, not years. 
and technology, you know, I mean, come on when, you know, you, you buy an iPhone and three months later it's outdated, you know, um, you can't keep up with that. So how are we supposed to, as practitioners that are limited by statute, you know, supposed to keep up with innovation and, and you know, in, in my opinion, sometimes, you know, we may not even be able to provide what is considered the standard of care because that changes very quickly, too. And if we have to wait for legislation to come around to be able to practice up to the level that we need to, you know, we're, we're really, you know, behind a wall there. So somehow, some way, I think, you know, that needs to be addressed. You know, a medical license is a plenary license. You, you can go and train at whatever you can, you know, you just have to find the training and someone that's willing to teach you, but there's no obstacle there, you know. Um, that's always been problematic for optometry, okay, and, and, and some way, somehow, I think that needs to be addressed because, you know, knowledge and, and skill and technology is just going to keep rolling over faster and faster and faster and if we're going to be able to compete, you know, with professions that, you know, obviously do not, uh, you know, want the competition. I know you're not supposed to say that, but, you know, don't want the competition. Um, we're going to need a, a, a more level playing field in that regard. I really appreciate that perspective. Now, uh, back to your family. I want to know if you're, what your wife is doing as an optometrist today. And mm -hmm. I want to know about Max. Okay. Well, wife, after my, our second child was born, decided that uh, she wanted to be a stay-at-home mom. And, uh, and then she took on the challenge of homeschooling. Oklahoma is very strong in homeschooling. So fast forward, you know, 20 years or so, and, and I've got one son then that graduated from optometry school and is currently actually working on an MBA. You know, I, I think he saw uh, that, that uh, you know, I, I think I want to write out the pandemic earning an MBA, Dad. <laughs> Interesting. All right. You know, if you still have it in you another couple of years, go for it. So he's in his second semester at OSU earn, earn, earning an MBA. The OSU, by the way, not, not that school in Ohio. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Um, and uh, and then my youngest son getting ready to graduate with a math minor in physics. He's done very well, you know, homeschooled, done very, we were a little concerned because he had never stepped foot in a traditional classroom until his first day, freshman year in college. We weren't sure what to expect, but yeah, he's done very, very well. Mom and, did very uh, that, well, clearly. Uh, mom has done extremely well. And, uh, uh, you know, thinking back, uh, that was the best decision she could have made. Tell us about Max. Uh, Max, uh, though, I have to say, you know, we have had huskies. We have had the last dog be before Max was a 110-pound um, Alaskan Malamute. We've always had outside dogs, big dogs. Max is the first indoor small, you know, pup that uh, we ever had. Um, Max has... I have to say, the smartest dog we have ever had. He's trained us, okay? He has trained us. <laughs> you know, he knows, He knows. you know, it's. I want whatever, it's time for me to eat. He knows the signal. He knows what he has to do. He wants to go here. He knows what he has to do. 
Um, and it's funny because uh, sometimes I, I don't even catch myself thinking it's more like a knee jerk, you know, oh, there, there's, there's the cue, you know, there's the conditioning <laughs> from dog back to human. <laughs> the only thing he doesn't do is ring the little, you know, Pavlov's bell, you know, That's awesome. <laughs> he, he's probably a little too smart for that. <laughs> well, Dr. Rich Castillo, thank you for what you've done for optometry, continued successes with your students and your practice. Uh, really appreciate your commitment to our profession. Well, thank you. And, uh, you know, as I have said time and time again, um, thank you all, because, you know, without this amazing thing that we call the House of Optometry, uh, a guy like Rich Castillo really wouldn't wouldn't have a job, wouldn't have, you know, the career that I've been able to have. So, so thank you for everything you have done and optometry for uh, creating this marvelous profession. Um, you know, again, when my son decide, was deciding on what he wanted to do, he investigated medicine, he investigated dentistry, he investigated several other professions, and he settled on optometry. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that will bring blessings many times over over the course of his professional career as well. Well, folks, uh, you've heard it from somebody who is really committed to the profession from a family of optometry. I appreciate the audience for attending. And until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.